Thank you, Drew. Thank you, Ryan, for the kind welcome and congregation for the greetings that I've already had from many of you. I bring you greetings from the Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. If you're ever visiting in our nation's capital, do feel free and come find us. We're just uh, four blocks behind the Supreme Court, easy to find. Been there for 140 years. I mean, not me personally, but the congregation. <laughs> and uh, some Sundays it does feel like that. But uh, I'm delighted that uh, your pastor very kindly extended this uh, offer, this invitation, and I'm delighted to open God's word with you. I want to begin over in Mark chapter 16. We turn over to Mark chapter 16. You're familiar with the ending of Mark's gospel? When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, he has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Well, friends, they did go there. They did meet him there. And that's where Matthew's gospel helps us. Turn over to the end of Matthew's gospel, to Matthew chapter 28, about just this meeting. Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain, which Jesus had directed them. You know, that's where he had through that angel, instructed the disciples to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Friends, in this time together, I want to pose five questions which will help us think about this final command of Christ and what it means for us as his disciples and particularly for you as Desert Springs Church. Number one, how are we to fulfill this great commission that Jesus gave to his disciples? It's an important question for us as Christians. Is this going, this making disciples, this baptizing, this teaching, is this to be done primarily through our individual evangelizing and discipling? Certainly it will not be done without our individual evangelizing and discipling. But is that all there is to it? Is it a matter of us buying plane tickets and having tracks. I think I've got 
here in my pocket, copies of J.D. Anderson's Evidence for the Resurrection. I had these left over from Easter where we're giving these out to people who are visiting. Is it, is, it, is it using things like that? Is it speaking with individuals? Or, or is there something else that we should see here in these words of Jesus? Grammatically, there is one imperative in the statement. It's the verb make disciples. That's one word in the Greek. And then there are these three participles in this statement of Jesus. The first participle is usually translated go, and that's no bad thing because this participle is the first word in the sentence and it is before the imperative, make disciples. So it has a very special emphasis, go, making disciples. You realize Jesus' own mission had been to the lost sheep of the nation of Israel. That's very clear throughout his earthly ministry. But now Jesus is exalted as the judge of all the earth. Uh, we saw a preview of that in the section of Daniel 7 that Roseanne read to us earlier. Jesus has risen with the authority of the Son of Man from that passage we read in Daniel 7, the authority of the Almighty, and he is going to ascend to his messianic throne, thus fulfilling that promise that God had made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning at verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I, the Lord speaking to David, will raise up your offspring, and that's in the singular, after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Well, now the Messiah King, Jesus Christ's view, is extended beyond Israel as he has always intended to all the nations. And what is it that the Lord had prophesied centuries before through Isaiah? In Isaiah 49, 6, we read, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the nations that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Friends, you see what's happening here in Matthew 28 ties up the end of Matthew's gospel with its beginning. In chapter one, verse one, Jesus is said to be the son of David. He is that offspring promised in 2 Samuel 7, 14. But Matthew goes back even further and announces that this one is not only the son of David, but he is the son of Abraham. So Matthew takes us back centuries earlier, before that promise of the Lord to David, centuries earlier back to God's promise to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, when the Lord promised him, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So friends, what I want you to see is that now Jesus, standing on this mountain, these gathered disciples, whether there were 11 there or a few dozen or several hundred, these witnesses had now seen how it was that God had always intended to fulfill that promise to Abram. 
So when he made that promise to Abram, I don't know how it sounded to his ears. It must have sounded surprising, maybe obscure, unclear, uncertain in some ways. But still, throughout the Old Testament, we see the plan unfolding. But now here, in blistering clarity, at this time, after his crucifixion and resurrection, before he ascends to take the throne, he tells the disciples how this promise is going to be fulfilled. This is how all the nations will be blessed through Abraham's faith. When God made his promise to Abram, he foresaw it being fulfilled in this event through this command. All the disciples are to go to all the nations and teach them to obey all of the commandments of Jesus. And for that, he has promised to them that who has been given, that he has been given all authority so that he will be with them all their days until he returns. And that's how we know that this promise is for us because it wasn't just a promise for the disciples' age. It's until he returns. This command goes on and his promise is of his presence with us till the end of the age. So this was not a promise to be fulfilled in that first generation only or in our generation only. We stand on the shoulders of generations before us who've gone and established the truth about Jesus Christ. Friends, what I want you to see here this morning is that this commission is for us. All right, so where does Desert Springs Church here in Albuquerque come in? Well, that's what I want you to imagine with me right now. That's what I want you to understand. You have to consider first, what is a church? What is a church? How would you define it? Well, simply put, we could summarize it like this. A church is a body of Christians who are in regular fellowship with the word rightly preached and baptism and the Lord's Supper rightly administered. That is administered as markers of the gospel, not as some religious magic. We are created and marked off from the world around us as those people who hear and heed God's word. We believe him and we trust him. So my thesis for this message is simply this. The local church is the normal means God has given us to fulfill Christ's commission. That's my thesis, that sentence. I'll say it again. The local church is the normal means God has given us to fulfill Christ's commission. I want us to consider this morning the relationship of churches and especially of your church, of Desert Springs here, to Christ's great commission and to consider more fully this question of how we today are to fulfill the Great Commission. I want us to look at the big picture, that is the Old Testament, and I want us to look at the end and see what Jesus taught and what the apostles who heard that teaching did. And then consider, okay, what does that mean for us and our churches today? And I pray that God will even be instructing you by his spirit through his word what this means 
for this particular local church today where the Lord has you in your following of him. So that's all number one. How are we to fulfill the great commission? We're to fulfill it through the local church. Number two, what is the big picture? What is the big picture? Well, from beginning to end, let's think about it. The point of the whole Bible, Old and New Testaments, is God's revelation of himself to us. It is, in fact, all about his word to us. Therefore, it is all about promises that he made and promises that he keeps. And our response to him, to trust him. So you hear God's word. How will you respond? So many of Jesus' parables talk about those who hear God's word. And merely hearing God's word is, is no reason for confidence. Parable after parable will have uh, people who hear God's word. You think of the parable of the, in Matthew 7 of the people who heard God's word but then didn't do it. Well, they were like the people who built their house on sand. And then there were others who heard God's word, just like the first group, only they believed it and obeyed it. Ah, they were like those who built their house on a rock. Friends, we are to hear and to believe. So we see here in God's word, this is what happens in the life of person after person. You think of Paul's life. He writes in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentiles. So God's word turns to us here this morning. And the question comes to us, will, will we, will you trust God with your life? That's the nature of wisdom in the Proverbs. Wisdom comes and holds out two ways. And you will walk in one or the other. But wisdom beckons you to walk in the way of wisdom. Or in Romans chapter 4, when we think of Abraham, and that's where Paul writes to us about Abraham and how we're to understand him. Abraham is marked out as a man who by faith trusted God and the promise that he gave him. So God gives us his word, his promises, and we respond by trusting him in his word, just like Adam and Eve didn't in the Garden of Eden, just like Jesus did, especially in the Garden of Gethsemane. We hear and we believe his word, and we begin again to have that relationship with God that we were literally made to have. So friends, this is the hope in which we can trust, in which we should trust, because this is the hope that will not disappoint the promises of God. And this is what the Bible, Old and New Testament, is all about, that there is a God, that he's made us in his image, that we should trust him, that we should believe him, that we should follow him. Now, how will God do this? How will he bring this about? Merely with individuals? as you or I make a decision to follow Christ, to follow the Lord? Well, I'll just ask you to step back and look at the whole Bible. What do you see as the way God has made us? In, in the Old Testament, from the very beginning, you realize each individual is made in the image of God. So sometimes individualism is spoken of as a negative thing. But friends, in the Bible, we see the roots of individualism. In the best sense, 
we will all give account to God. You can tell me all about how, how terrible a situation is you've been in. And I certainly hope and pray God will provide for you in that. And hopefully your friends here, the elders in this church can be helpful to you. But friend, there is no amount of ill that you or I have suffered that will ever cause us not to be accountable for God, to God. He is the one who has given us our lives. We are to give account to him. God has made each one of us in his image. But if you look what he's done from the very beginning of the Bible, God has always worked corporately. That's his pattern. Adam and, not just Adam alone, but Adam and Eve. Not just Noah being saved alone, but Noah and his family. Not just Abram, but Abram and his descendants. In fact, the whole nation of Israel in the Old Testament. God has always worked corporately with his people. So at this end, ultimately we see Matthew 28 is fulfilled in the church. You go over to the book of Revelation, chapter 7. We can kind of cheat, look at the end of the book, see what happens. This great commission is given. We don't have to bite our nails wondering, oh, is this going to be fulfilled? Is it going to happen? What will happen? Well, it's there in the Bible. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Friends, it's going to work. The great commission will work. In the book of Revelation, we have this pattern again and again of where John will hear something and then he looks and he hears the promise and then he sees the fulfillment. Have you noticed that when you've been reading Revelation? So in, in Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter five, if you look at Revelation chapter five, uh, verse five, verses three and four, the scroll is brought out that has all of human history on it. And nobody can open it, and John's very sad, and he weeps loudly, thinking, oh no, everything stopped here. But then one of the elders said in Revelation 5, 5, weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So he's heard about the lion, and then look at the next verse, verse 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So friends, he's the one who says in verse seven, who went and took the scroll. So the lion is the lamb. That's what we're being taught. It's the same way here in chapter seven. You see there in chapter seven, verse four, John hears the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And you may have some friends here who don't read their Bibles very well. Maybe you're, you're visiting with us today and you've uh, been brought up in the Jehovah's Witnesses. And you think there is a literal 144,000, which, you know, there will be, I think, from Scripture, at least that many who are saved. Looks like a lot more. 
But if you understand what's being said here, he then goes through the tribes. So all the tribes are included. And he has 12,000 from all the tribes. So this 144,000 is 12 times 12,000. So it's just saying all of God's people. Well, that's what John hears. Like he heard about the lion. But then he looked and he saw the lion is the lamb slain. And now if you look in verse 9, Revelation 7, 9 that I read to you. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. That is the fulfillment of the 144,000. It's the countless numbers from every nation. Friends, the Great Commission will be fulfilled. This is a, a multitude of people from all over the world that testify to the faithfulness of God forever. So this is what we're headed to in the Bible. The Bible makes it clear. The, the big picture in the Bible is from Israel to the redeemed in heaven. And God is known as faithful. He is the one who makes promises and keeps them. God will have a community that knows him and praises him as such. And we've got such a picture in the Old Testament and we're headed towards such a picture finally that we see here in the book of Revelation. So the question is, what are we to expect Jesus to tell his followers standing there on the mount before he ascends? Brings me to my third question. What has God done? So in this gap between the Old Testament and the book of Revelation, in this period in here, what, what has God done? In Jesus' own ministry, because of how God has always been working in the Old Testament, it's no surprise that Jesus speaks to us, to his followers, so much about how we are to love one another. Much like even how we love God. You know, when he answers what the two greatest commandments are, what the greatest commandment is, he gives them two. Mark 12, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. There is a necessary corporate component to our claim to love God. This kind of love between his disciples is even distinctive of his disciples, we see in John 13. If you've been visiting this church and you're not a believer, maybe you're here with a family member, maybe you're a teenager, uh, maybe you're somebody who's just thinking about the claims of Christ, I would encourage you to get to know the people here and see if you don't see something that rings true in the way these people who don't have that much in common love each other and care for each other. That's the, the sort of calling card of the truth of who Jesus is that God has put there in your life. Friend, give attention to that today. God has made you in his image. You have sinned against him. You have done what you should not do and your own heart tells you that. God in his justice could leave you lost in your sins to fall under his judgment eternally. But in his amazing love, he has sent his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, fully man, and at the same time, truly God. He lived a life of perfect love and trust in his heavenly father that you and I should have lived, but haven't. He died on the cross, presenting himself as a sacrifice in the place of all of us who would turn and trust in him. 
God raised him from the dead. He gave his disciples this command and then ascended to heaven to begin his reign. And that's when he calls us all to turn from our sins and to trust in him. Friend, that could be you today. There's no reason why you today shouldn't turn from your sins to trust in Christ. If you want to know what those words look like in your own life, talk to someone you came with. Talk to someone who knows you. Uh, People here in this room would happily be late for lunch if they can talk to you. They may need to go get their kids, help childcare workers, but then you can wait for a minute. They would be happy to talk to you all afternoon about what that would mean for you. Young person, if you're here, make sure you know what it means for you in particular to follow Jesus Christ. It's not just something for your parents. It's something for you. Talk about this over lunch. Talk to one of the pastors here. Talk to people that you can continue to see and know. It wasn't surprising for Jesus to establish this people around him because that's what he's been talking about, establishing a people. That's what he's talking about here. In uh, Matthew 28, in our text, when he says in verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he has authority to rule. And what's even more amazing is the way that Jesus has given this authority that he has to the local church. That's what we find in Matthew's gospel earlier. If you look back in Matthew 16, that very famous portion where Peter confesses him as the Messiah, do you remember what he says? In Matthew 16, verse 18, he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That's this authority he talks about in chapter 28. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then when you look a couple of chapters later in chapter 18, and Jesus is talking about forgiveness among his disciples, he does raise the question, what about somebody who once they sin against you will not repent? They won't repent of their sins. Look what he says in chapter 18, verse 17, verse 16. If he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Those are the keys. That's the binding and loosing. That's what Jesus had said to Peter as the one who was believing in him, now he envisions a group of people, a local church, as the local church believes in him. The local church is the group that finally acts to have someone in the fellowship or out of the fellowship. We don't make somebody a Christian. The Holy Spirit does that. You do that by repenting and believing. But it's the local church that has the authority to recognize that. So what we see is that Jesus has entrusted the church with his authority in the proclamation of his message, and in leading and shepherding his people. So in Matthew 28, Jesus is telling his disciples, he's giving them all of the authority that they will need to fulfill this commission that he's giving them. So he's giving them a a great commission. Great not just in the sense of being good, but great in the sense of being huge. He's giving them this great commission, but he's also giving giving them along with it everything they will need to fulfill it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, says Jesus. And he will be with us, his presence, till the very end of the age. So we think not just about reaching every nation, 
but every generation. Not just running around quickly now, but trying to see people thoroughly converted now. So what has God done? We see that in Scripture that Christ is concerned to establish his church. It's fundamentally the work of the triune God. We see God cares about the church. Christ founded the church. We see in Matthew chapter 16 in that passage, God's spirit gifts the church. So God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is involved and is committed to what we call today church planting, seeing new churches begun and established. So the church is not something which is fundamentally a human idea or a human creation, but it is fundamentally God's idea and God's work. And once it's God must be the great church planter. We have to know that this is ultimately God's work to continue the witness here at Desert Springs or to see a new church begun. That's not just a matter of something that you can decide to do as a congregation. That's God's work. That's what he does. That's what has God done. Let's, let's go to a fourth question. What did the apostles understand? Well, they were the ones who heard Jesus give this commission. So what did they hear him to say? Well, we can tell by what they did and what they taught. If you look back through the New Testament to instruct us between Christ's ascension in Acts 1 and his return in the book of Revelation, what do we find? We find that the Great Commission is fulfilled primarily through what? Is it through just individuals evangelizing and discipling? There are certainly individuals evangelizing and discipling. Certainly the basic command is to make disciples. And in order to do this, they must tell the message. But consider, friends, how they did it. Consider their example and their teaching. Look at what they did. They established churches. The guys who heard the Great Commission spent their life establishing churches. Read the book of Acts. If this is the first day of a new month. If you don't have anything planned for your quiet times this month, take the book of Acts. Just go through it and note how these people who heard the Great Commission spent their time not merely individually evangelizing. Individually evangelizing is great. But they congregationalized those who were converted. They were in congregations. They, they, they follow the work of the Holy Spirit. They bring the work of the Holy Spirit with them. They come with the authority of Christ and they establish new churches. The story of the spread of the gospel is the spread of churches from Jerusalem to Rome. And we see this not just from the book of Acts, but from the rest of the New Testament as well. In 1 Corinthians uh, in chapter 11 or, or Hebrews chapter 10, the assumption is that the Christians are regularly coming together. Paul says when he writes to the Corinthians that he's concerned for all the churches. Or in Ephesians chapter 1, he prays for Christ to strengthen the church. Friends, this is what the apostles did. They preached the gospel and planted churches. And in the New Testament, we see the churches did the same. They went in obedience to this commission here in Matthew 28. Go. They did what Jesus had taught them about so movingly in the parables of, of Luke 15 to go to the lost sheep, to search for the lost coin. As Jesus taught about his own mission in Luke 19, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. So Jesus' apostles went and told the good news. They worked to evangelize. 
and the New Testament churches joined them in that work. They particularly worked to plant other churches. So we see the Philippian church in Philippians chapter four is helping to plant new churches. Or in 3 John, the believers there are rebuked by John for not helping these people who've gone out to plant churches. The New Testament shows the Great Commission being fulfilled by church planting. And friends, this makes sense. How else could they make disciples teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you? If you're gonna teach them to obey everything that Jesus commanded, they are gonna need shepherds. Why would that be the case? Because just think of the role of shepherds. What do shepherds do in the New Testament? Shepherds guard the sheep. Shepherds guide the sheep. Shepherds feed the sheep. Shepherds guard the gospel. So that makes sense. A sheep that's converted needs to not just hang out by himself. It is a fallen, wolfy world out there. The sheep need to be with other sheep. Uh, There's a whole bunch of sheep, a, a flock. They need to get there quickly where there are shepherds who will care for them and guard them. So evangelize your friends, yes, but get them then into flocks. So they need to be in flocks because of the role of the shepherds, but also, frankly, because of the role of the sheep together. The local church is part of the sanctification and protection of each other. The sheep help to protect each other. The sheep help to guide each other. You look at the way in Colossians, uh, Paul talks in chapter three about us admonishing one another. The sheep help to feed each other, teach one another. That's why the spirit gifts us as he does in the church. The sheep help to guard the gospel. We see that in some of Paul's challenging words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 or much earlier to the Galatians in Galatians chapter one. So no single sheep is going to be infinitely, perfectly discerning. The local church with faithful elders and a faithful congregation protects the gospel. In that sense, the local church is the best way for us to further an unadulterated gospel to the next generation. Work to establish a local church. See why Paul called it to Timothy, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So the local church is how we obey this command in Matthew 28 to teach them to observe or to obey. If you look there in Matthew 28 again in verse 20, I think people often think of that final command in verse 20 as teaching them everything I've commanded you. Like the Christian life is some great Sunday school class. But actually that's not what Jesus said. No, if you look at it for a moment, you see Jesus' final command to his disciples in Matthew's gospel is teach them to observe or to obey all that I have commanded you. Friends, Jesus is looking for disciples not merely decisions. It will take time. It is Jesus and his commands which others are to be taught and to be taught to obey. And this is what it means to be a disciple, a Christian. Are there any true Christians who are not disciples? No. Every true Christian is a a disciple, a follower. So by looking in the New Testament, we see that the apostles spread the gospel by planting churches which nurtured disciples. So putting it all together, we need a set of self-conscious commitments in our discipleship in order to obey what the Bible teaches. I was teaching this once 
to a group of Christians in India. And I don't know if you've ever been to India, but in this sense, it's a lot like the western part of the United States. That is, Calvary chapels here, the brethren there in India have taught against church membership for a long time. Uh, erroneously, badly, I think, to the damage of churches. And so I realized I had a, had a group of like, I don't know, 100 pastors there, all influenced by the, the Plymouth Brethren, and they'd not really taught much about church membership. They'd been taught kind of against it. They were taught a lot of good things about Christ and the gospel, the authority of scripture. But on this point, they had been badly mistaught. And they weren't gonna hear anything I was gonna say from historically what the church had done. They wanted it from the Bible. So I thought, great, I got a big whiteboard and I put up three dots. Let's say you've got the Christian, me. Let's say you've got a particular group of Christians. And let's just say, let's say you have a pastor or pastors. Now, here's your exercise. I want you to look in the New Testament and tell me, does Jesus and does the word of God say anything to the individual Christian about how they're to relate to a specific group of Christians? And does it say anything about how the individual Christian is to relate to a specific pastor or pastors? They were quiet for a minute and they all said yes. Then they started giving me verses. So I started writing those verses down on the board. And then I said, okay, what about a particular group of Christians, a gathering, gathers regularly, does it say anything about what that gathering should do for each individual in it and for a certain pastor or pastors who teach it God's word. Again, they were quiet for a minute. Then they began to shout out verses and I wrote them down on the, on the whiteboard. And then I said, okay, and now what about for a pastor or if you have a group of them, a group of pastors, does it say anything about what they are to do for any particular group that they teach regularly and every individual of the group? Again, quietness for a moment. And then they began shouting out Bible verses and would write them down. So at the end of the day, we had tons of Bible verses. I have a lot of them just written here in my notes. And it was a wonderful exercise. And at the end of it all, I said, okay, so you see, in the New Testament, there is a self-conscious relationship that I, as a Christian, am supposed to have with a particular local group of Christians that I don't have with all Christians everywhere. And a particular relationship I'm supposed to have with a particular pastor who regularly teaches me God's word, God's word, or a particular group of pastors that I don't have with people you know, I see on TV or read a book of, but I have a particular relationship. And the pastor has a particular responsibility for a, a group he teaches regularly and meets with and who knows him and each individual in it. And that group has a particular responsibility to their pastors and to each member of it. And they were all agreeing with me regularly. I said, okay, we can do this every time we talk about it. We take 30 minutes to do this with a whiteboard and assembling things, or we can just use the two words, church membership. <laughs> it's kind of like the Trinity. I mean, we can, we can restart it all. Just start from Jesus, go to Psalm 110. My Lord said to my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord. And we can start rebuilding Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or we can just go, okay, as Christians, we have learned something. We can say the Trinity. It's just shorthand for all the Bible's teaching about the relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. One God, three persons. Church membership, very similar, analogically. We can rebuild it all with direct imperative commands from the Bible. Or we can just go, okay, it is true that when I come to Christ, I am supposed to be in a particular relationship with a group of Christians that I meet with locally that I'm not in with all other Christians everywhere else in the world. And they have a particular responsibility to me, and we have a particular responsibility in relationship with a certain pastor or pastors. That self-conscious commitment is called church membership. And friends, what I want you to see is the Great Commission 
doesn't mean a thing in the world without church membership. Jesus said, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Friends, baptism and the Lord's Supper presumes that we are in regular relationship with each other, that we know each other, that we're evangelizing, that we're building each other up. So many other things. You can, this can cascade out in lots of conversations over lunch. Basically, I think what you find when you look at a local church is things that may seem discreet and separate from each other are actually deeply related. So discipling, that is where I try to help somebody else grow as a Christian. Evangelizing, share the gospel with a non-Christian. Seeing new elders raised up in your local church. Planting new churches. Missions around the world. This is all kind of the same thing. There are some Christians in some churches who just pick one or the other and major on it. They're all about discipling. They want to see people mature in Christ. Well, that's good. But you realize if you do that, you, you are going to be pushing on to evangelism. You will realize if you care for others and how they are spiritually, that doesn't stop at the church. That includes others. You're to share the gospel with others. And furthermore, if you have this concern for how people are spiritually, you should be seeing elders raised up in your church. There should be more and more elders that are popping out as shepherds to help this local church. And soon, by God's grace, you find we have more than we need. And there are more preachers raised up and we could actually take some of these and start a new church. So we could actually have a witness over on the other side of the river. We could have a witness in the, in the town up, up the road or down the road where we have 40 people out there and, and no good gospel witness in that school district. And you're gonna start thinking, you know, not just that school district, but it's true of, of that part of, of Mexico that's nearest us. And, and actually uh, uh, some friends I have who are from Samoa, or some things I'm hearing about in Afghan refugees, or it starts going around the world. You see, this, it's all the same little germ of that concern for the spiritual good, not just of yourself, but of others. That's what you want to see permeating this congregation. And from this congregation, you literally want it to go around the world. Which brings me to my last question. What is our goal in fulfilling the Great Commission? What is our goal in fulfilling the Great Commission? The goal is the glory of God in the church. The glory of God in the church. If Jesus is the image of the invisible God, as we read in Colossians, how do we see Jesus today? Jesus is not to be worshipped through physical icons or images. We have no account of him teaching his disciples to draw or sketch, or sculpt. We have books they wrote, but no images they made remaining for our adoration. People say this is a visual age. Friends, every age is a visual age. We are made to crave the immediacy of sight that did not come with television, it didn't come with the internet, it didn't come with the iPhone. We have been made that way. We naturally desire to see God immediately, but that blessing was taken away from us at the fall. We live in salvation history in the era not of the eye, doesn't matter what technology goes on among people, but we live in the age of the ear. The future comes to us first by what we hear, not by what we see. 
One day, that glorious immediacy of seeing God face to face will be restored to us. That's the climax of the Bible. It's Revelation 22, 4. They shall see God. We know that. On that day, as Paul wrote to the Philippians, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But until then, God is made most visible, it seems, not in two-dimensional paintings, but in the lives lived out in the local church. That's his plan, it seems, for churches to display the glory of his nature of goodness and love, of justice and mercy. And so bring him praise. I love that, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and Paul says in verse 15, for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. How simple is that? 2 Corinthians 4, verse 15. It is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Amen. Friends, Christ identifies with the church. He will be with us to the end of the age. We are to reflect his love. We're to reflect his wisdom. As Paul wrote to the Ephesians, the manifold wisdom of God appears. The church is how Christ's authority is to be displayed and his glory displayed through the church. The church, in many ways, you could say, is the gospel made visible. So what is Jesus' evangelism plan for Albuquerque? It's his church. It's Desert Springs Church. And every true gospel preaching church here in this city. The local church is where the authority of Christ is exercised. The local church is where disciples are made and baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. The local church is where Christians are taught to obey everything that Christ commanded us. I love how John Payton, a 19th century Scottish missionary to the South Pacific, how he wrote about this in his own life. He gave his own life to spend in islands of the South Pacific trying to see a church like this one established among people who had never even heard the name of Christ when he first got to the island. His advice to missionaries when he wrote his autobiography over 100 years ago is good advice for me to leave with you for your own mission strategy as you look at a lost city, a lost state, a nation, a lost world. He says, plant down your forces in the heart of one tribe or race where the same language is spoken. Work solidly from the center, building up with patient teaching and lifelong care, a church that will endure. Rest not till every people and language and nation has such a Christ center throbbing in its midst with the pulses of the new life at full play. Rush not from land to land, from people to people in a breathless, fruitless mission. The concentrated common sense that builds for eternity will receive the fullest approval of God in time. Friends, my read is that's what you've been doing here in Albuquerque. And I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful for the people I meet that I've met here before who are still following Christ. I'm thankful for the new brothers that I get to know as I hear their testimonies. I'm thankful for the new building work that shows your thing of even better space for the next generation as it grows up 
You're doing things that will bless people if the Lord tarries after you're gone. And I know your pastors. They try to work not just for your benefit, but for the benefit of other pastors in the area and other churches. That is exactly right. That's how the gospel grows. That's how the Great Commission is fulfilled. We see that church planting is the normal business of the local church. We see that the Great Commission is normally fulfilled through church planting. I rest my case. <laughs> Let me lead us in prayer. Lord God, we pray that you would affirm and confirm every good thing that's happening here at Desert Springs Church. We thank you for your goodness to this body of people over the last several decades. We pray, Lord, that it would continue until you return. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.